Hey friends, Abdul here. Before we get started, I want to tell you how excited I am about my upcoming book published with Dr. Micah Johnson, Medicare for All, A Citizen's Guide. Tomorrow, we get to the hard work of actually solving the problems that have been festering for so long under the Trump presidency. And one of them is our failed healthcare system that this pandemic has fundamentally exploited. We could do so much better if we were willing to really take on healthcare at its core. In Medicare for All, we take on the big questions. Is it going to cost too much? Is it going to force people to ration healthcare? Is it going to take away our choice? And we deal with each one of them. I hope that you'll check out the book, medicareforallbook.com. Now, here's the thing. In order for this book to have the intended consequence to move our public conversation, to reignite this conversation about Medicare for All, we've got to make it a bestseller. I'm told by my editors that we've got to sell 5,000 copies by February 1st. I hope that you'll help us out. Medicareforallbook.com, out February 1st. Now, on to the show. We set another weekly record for COVID-19 deaths as hospitals around the country weigh rationing care. America officially gets a new president tomorrow, and he's proposed a $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package that includes support for small businesses, $1,400 COVID relief checks, unemployment support, and support for state and local governments. We remain woefully behind on vaccine deployment, having administered 14 million doses. We were supposed to have 20 million by the end of 2020. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. And tomorrow, we get to drop the elect from President-elect Joe Biden. Inshallah. I spent part of my childhood in Missouri, where every morning in elementary school, we recited the Pledge of Allegiance before singing My Country, Tis of Thee, America the Beautiful, and the Star-Spangled Banner. I was the only Muslim kid in my class. We had one other religious minority in my class. She was a Jehovah's Witness who would stay seated for all the pageantry. If you remember the song, one part of My Country Tis of Thee goes, Land Where My Fathers Died. I'd never sing that part because my fathers just didn't die here, and my five-year-old self didn't want to lie. Every time that line came up, though, I'd look over to the little girl next to me, seated with her head down, and I'd admire the fact that she wouldn't sing at all, despite all the other kids doing it. It's really hard to do when you're five. There's something exceptional about that. It was 1990 in the literal middle of America. And this Muslim Egyptian-American kid, one generation removed from Alexandria, Egypt, is singing hymnals to America. And meanwhile, the white girl next to him is seated because her faith won't allow it. But here's the thing. Reverse the roles. Imagine that little Muslim-American boy decided not to sing the hymnals to America because he understood it to be against his faith. Would it have been accepted the same way? What about today? Tomorrow, God willing, our government will perform one of the most sacred ceremonies at the heart of its very existence the democratic transfer of power. We've done that without bloodshed for hundreds of years, until, of course, this one. That, too, is exceptional. But I want you to think about that same boy singing hymnals to America in a classroom in 1990, Missouri. Think about his cousins, thousands of miles away. Shouldn't they have the same right to democratic self-determination as he does? Then why are we so comfortable supporting military regimes in places like Egypt? How many people's democratic rights abroad have been stifled by our own short-term national interests, the presumed, quote-unquote, stability of this or that national strongman? That classroom, it was in a safe, well-funded public school where the water was clean and the bookshelves were stocked with books, and also in a suburb where almost everyone was white. A couple hundred miles away in East St. Louis, for example, 
one of the poorest communities in America, it would have been a very different story. That, too, is exceptional. All of that is American exceptionalism. It should remind us that exceptionalism is a double-edged sword. And in America, it's often meant justifying our actions abroad simply because we did them, or robbing our people of the basic necessities of a dignified life while excusing it because we are the richest, most powerful country in the world. And when it comes to this pandemic, America, too, has been exceptional. We account for nearly 400,000 of the 2 million people who've died of COVID-19, one in five global deaths. Being as we account for only 4% of all people on this earth, Americans are 20 times as likely to die of COVID-19 as our counterparts worldwide. And while many other countries across the world have figured out how to minimize death and disease to this preventable virus through basic, consistent, collective public health measures, we've thrown a Hail Mary bet on vaccines because we're unwilling to invest in each other. And guess what? The fact that we remain the richest and most powerful country on earth almost delivered us. Our scientists spearheaded the creation of a safe, effective vaccine in record time. And then the fact that we've disinvested in public goods and services like state and local health departments for so long meant that we still can't figure out how to get that incredible scientific achievement out to the people it's supposed to serve. It really is exceptional. Today, we talked to Dr. Paul Farmer, a renowned medical humanitarian and medical anthropologist who's written a new book about Ebola in West Africa, Fevers, Feuds, and Diamonds, Ebola in the Ravages of History. The book is chock full of insights about human nature in the face of disease in a context far different from our own. And it reminds us that however different we may be, in money, in power, in access, our insistence on difference doesn't necessarily make it so. And that ending pandemics, well, that requires the same basic things, the world around, no matter how exceptional you are. After the break. All right, our guest today is Dr. Paul Farmer. He's a personal hero of mine and somebody that I really, really respect. He is a medical anthropologist and medical humanitarian. He is a professor at Harvard University and author of the new book, Fevers, Feuds, and Diamonds, Ebola and the Ravages of History. Dr. Farmer, really excited to have you here and really looking forward to talking about the role that context plays in shaping the health circumstances that we all face. Uh, thank you again for being on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. I remember reading about you in a really influential book that came out when I was in college called Mountains Beyond Mountains. And you've been a leading light for many physicians and public health activists for, for decades now. What got you into medicine and in public health? Well, the latter question is, is more important because I could never come up with some great reason for having decided that I was going to be a doctor. But I knew even when I was a little kid that I wanted to do that. And again, no idea why. I'd never been to a doctor. It just seemed like the thing that you might say if you were a child in a large family. My, my brothers used to say, oh, we lift weights and he lifts his books. So, <laughs> and so it is now all these 40, 50 years later. I don't know why I went into medicine. I do know that I grew into my reasons. But by the time I went to Haiti after college, I knew what I was doing in terms of wanting to be a physician. Public health is a different thing. I, I think part of it was, like, I was, I'm sure I was full of myself as a 23-year-old writing an application to medical school. I thought that I was just 
doing the most important work in Haiti, which proved to be false. It wasn't important work and it wasn't even good work. And I knew the first thing I should do was declare myself a public health student as a first year medical student in Boston. You know, I took a class at the Harvard School of Public Health, which is all of 150 yards, if that, from the medical school. You know, I walked over to a class and there was this part where we were discussing community assessment. And you've done a lot of that. You've done it for whole cities, you know. But when I was there in that Harvard-Haiti shuttle, you know, I was really concerned to learn about things that I might use to good effect with my colleagues in Haiti. And I took this class at the Harvard School of Public Health. You know, there's this elegant discussion of community assessment, looking at other tools that have been used. I said, well, what if you work in like a rural squatter settlement? And one student said, squatter settlements are urban. And I said, well, some of them are rural. Hmm. But when the professor weighed in, it was to say, well, in those settings where there are very, very limited resources, and this was before the term resource-limited settings was propagated with ill effect also, you know, but they were really using this as code for the nation state. And, and if you're in a really poor country, said the professor, then we have Gobi. And a lot of the people in the room started nodding. Gobi, I thought that was a desert in Mongolia, but no. It was growth monitoring, oral rehydration, breastfeeding, and immunization. That was the strategic package for these settings of poverty. And so, you know, I said, not in a, a typical student contest way, but in, in the voice of someone who's desperately interested to hear the answer, what if you get hit by a car? Mm-hmm. How is Gobi, growth monitoring, oral rehydration, breastfeeding, and immunization, mm. going to help you survive? But I already lived through enough of that to know that that was not the kind of public health I wanted to do. Mm. And so started avoiding the, the term altogether and, and talking about global health equity, whether we're talking Detroit or the Sudan. What you're speaking to is that part of the frustration of the way we do public health is that we stereotype the health challenges that people are going to face as a function of their income and wealth. and Or even race. Or their race. That's absolutely right, right? Which is often code for race. That's that's a great point. What's interesting about this moment is actually that's been flipped on its head, yeah. right? We have a scenario in COVID-19 where we are the richest, most powerful country in the world. We account for 20% of all COVID-19 deaths, despite being 4% of the world's population. We're five times as likely to die per capita of COVID in this country, despite being a decidedly ungoby healthcare environment. We do more with ICUs in this country than we do with basic sanitation and prevention. How do you feel like that attitude and that stereotyping may have gotten in the way of the way that we're dealing with COVID-19 in the United States? And how do we break that paradigm and and maybe, maybe humble ourselves a little bit regarding what we failed at and what it takes to actually succeed? Medicine and public health. And I'll give one example. You know, if I had not spent a year in Haiti and I heard another eminent Harvard professor ask us, well, here's your ethical choice. Should we invest more money in NICUs or pay attention to prenatal care among African-American women in Boston? That was a classic. I'm sure mm-hmm. you ran into that at Columbia. I saw everybody nodding again and I thought, wait, why would we choose between a NICU and prenatal care? Mm. If you have prenatal care, you're less likely to need a NICU. And if you have family planning, you're less likely to need prenatal care. But really, those are the choices that we're forced to make. 
and the COVID epidemic is playing out with the same public health Luddite commentary. Without, without ICUs, we're going to lose a lot of elderly people and some younger people too. So right now, before we get on to your question of how has this way of seeing medical dilemmas hamstrung us, I'm just saying the public health people are still often getting it wrong. And by public health people, I'm not talking about the global health equity public health people. I'm just saying really a choice between prenatal care and a NICU that's dumb. Let's not make some more bombers or something or some other malignant process. Let's not privatize all of Detroit and sell it off. So I'm still very skeptical of the critique of our medicalization of COVID. I don't believe that's why we're failing so poorly. We're failing so poorly because we don't have a national health care delivery system. We don't have a safety net. We don't have unemployment insurance. We don't have careful referral systems. I mean, why should we have to come up with 50 different ways to distribute vaccine? Mm-hmm. You know, in Massachusetts alone, where we've been working very heavily with the public health departments and the, the public sector, there are 351 local health departments, Massachusetts with 6 million people. So, you know, I'm just saying, I hope we don't conclude at the end of this that we focus too much on the quality of care. We'll never focus much on the quality of care. What we didn't focus enough on is the fact that we don't have a national health care delivery system. We don't have a safety net. We don't have a way to prevent racism and other kind of social disparities from getting in our bodies. But we can develop those, all three of them. And that's where we should focus our attention. As you've said, this is a big, big opportunity for us to really rethink things. What I really appreciate about your point here is that it's not about the medicalization. It's about the corporatism driving the medicalization. And that corporatism is why we sort of built up this whole arsenal that's soulless, right? And so we're we're not really focused as much on the quality of care that we provide as much as we are the capacity to profiteer off of that care. Exactly. And also... Right, We have undercut the public resources and the coordination that we needed to nip this problem in the bud in the first place. That's a, a really important point. I, I want to ask you, Right, you just wrote this book about the Ebola epidemic in West Africa. And your book really drives home the point that context and history matter quite a bit for what we face in a particular moment. Thinking a bit about what we should have learned about the potential for a pandemic and maybe our preparation for a pandemic here at home and and really abroad across the world. What are the key points that you feel like we missed that the challenge of Ebola, which was a near miss for the world, which was a devastation for West Africa, what did we miss and what should we have learned? Well, you know, we missed kind of the opposite of what we're missing here. Here, I don't think that we're going to hear a lot of critique about the medical management of COVID inside an ICU. There will be some, but if there is some, it should be about why is case fatality 10% in New York in April and under 1% in Singapore? We should do that, Mm -hmm. right? But I don't think people are gonna say, we don't need ICUs. Trust me, that's exactly what they said in West Africa. And when I say people, I'm not talking about West Africans. I'm talking about us, our peers, who went to places like Harvard, Columbia, Johns Hopkins, et cetera, or their equivalents in Europe. That's exactly what I heard in West Africa is really the focus here should be containment. 
stop the epidemic. And I went, okay, but mm-hmm. you know, for those who are already sick, uh, maybe we should not be focused on containment since they're already sick. We should be focused on quality of care. And the whole epidemic, uh, at least the first year of it, and it wasn't that much longer, you know, we just couldn't get people to focus on the quality of care enough. Mm-hmm. So in my in my takeaway in that book, it was the same thing I had seen in Rwanda, Malawi, Lesotho, the Navajo Nation, a lot of other post-colonial settings, is that this was always going to be about containment over care. And indeed, you know, the, the wellspring of that paradigm is colonial medicine mm-hmm. in the late 19th century. So really not that that long ago. And that determined very much the shape of the response to Ebola in Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea. And the largest epidemic, but remarkably well-contained. And a lot of people are patting themselves on the back for having focused on containment. When I got asked during the middle of the epidemic or toward the latter part of it, what stopped it? To what did I attribute the success of the Ebola response? You know, I had to find a polite way to say it wasn't successful. And what stopped it was the Atlantic Ocean as it moved from east to west, you know, from this forested region where these three countries, Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia meet. Mm. That's where it started. And then what stopped it and its westward trail was the Atlantic Ocean. But that's not what we're dealing with with COVID in the United States. And maybe not even with COVID in Sierra Leone. And we can go back to that if we have time. But what I think I've described in West Africa and the post-colonial settings that I've seen it again is a control over care paradigm where everything is about public health and stopping the spread and very little is about the quality of care provided. What we're seeing now in the United States is not a control over care paradigm. We're forgetting containment, right? We're free, in other words, we've given up on it. Like anytime you hear someone say, no, we can't do contact tracing, or I was reading the New York Times this morning, reading about the losses among Native Americans in order to push forward contact tracing, the push was merely to have groups on the res do the contact tracing. It's not been elevated to a real national priority. And I have a hard time seeing how we're going to come down out of this. Mm -hmm. Now, the answer will be the vaccine probably, but not through other public health mechanisms if we can't focus on linking our care strategy and improving our care strategies to, to containment. You know, what emerges here and what tends to emerge, and the point that you, you made about colonialism is critical, around the trade-off implicitly between the value of your body and the value of your freedoms. And so much of the approach that was taken to Ebola implicitly said something about the notion that those folks over there, right, we need to make sure that the disease is contained over there so it doesn't hurt us over here. So giving them health care and easing their pain is less important than containing the disease over there. Whereas when we have a disease here, right, there is a recognition that providing health care is critical, which it was critical in both circumstances. But the willingness to then either curtail our own freedoms or to do the things as a society that curtail freedoms generally to prevent the spread of the disease goes much lower. And I wonder how much of that failure to recognize the fundamental humanity of those people over there, right, as a function of race and income and geography versus our unwillingness to give up some of our own freedoms over here to prevent and contain the disease, to protect ourselves. 
how much of that do you feel like is rooted in, you know, a conversation about whose bodies and whose lives and whose freedoms matter? As you're speaking, I'm thinking, I need to think more about this, but I have thought some about it. And I'll tell you that I find that an intriguing and, a, and a, even a better analysis than talking about containment over care versus care over containment. I think there are briefer ways for me to describe the control over care versus the care over control approaches, and you've just hit the nail on the head. But I would rather talk about differential valuation of other people's bodies than I would about American culture, which, by the way, has become a default mode, talking about libertarianism, et cetera. That would have fit very well into our discussion, but I'm not, a, I'm not qualified to comment on American culture. Is there an American culture? I mean, I don't know. I never got to see it growing up here. Hmm. Uh, there are many kinds of cultures. But, you know, when you're, when you're a 22 or 23-year-old and head from the United States to Haiti, you know, then you see more cultural homogeneity. Certainly, if you're in rural Haiti, everybody speaks the same language. This idea of critically examining American culture and its alleged libertarianism, certainly it seems to be coming out this past week, and I could easily make a, a cheap analysis, but I really think it's better to focus on the differential valuation of other people's bodies. And the way that I try to get at this in discussing Ebola is not dissimilar in discussing you know, HIV in Africa. It's like, really, are we going to be socialized for scarcity on behalf of other people? And why are they always black and brown people? So th that strikes me as a, an immediate and urgent mm -hmm. avenue of inquiry but I do think we can say, how do social inequalities shape our medical responses and our public health responses? And that, well, you've been writing about this and talking about it since you started this podcast. So that's the uh, area I want to go forward. What has been interesting to me has been the way that some of these notions sort of play out in microcosms. Early on in the pandemic, most of the communities that were hardest hit tended to be predominantly black and brown communities that were identifiable as such. And as the pandemic has progressed, right, through the summer and into the fall, it's now become a problem that has spread. The reasons that cities were hardest hit had much to do with race, but also a lot to do with geopolitics, right? The city of Detroit is one of the first that gets seated largely because there's a lot of traffic air traffic between here and East Asia, right, and China because of the industry, right? And then once it gets to Detroit, the structural inequities of our society then lead it into urban communities, and it, it takes a predominant toll. But you had city councilors, for example, in northern Michigan identifying COVID-19 with race in Detroit in, in really drastic and, and difficult to hear terms. And in some respect, right, that notion of how we devalue certain bodies, that happened inside of the United States and helped to substantiate, right, why some groups of people felt like they were structurally, in effect, immune to this thing. And that was a problem for people over there. It's fascinating how that plays out across the Atlantic Ocean or plays out across the northern part and the southeastern part of the state of Michigan. I'm wondering how we deal with the conversation that we're having about care and control and the inequities that we've seen in COVID-19 and the way that this virus has played out and what it teaches us about what we need to do, hopefully, in the post-pandemic future. I think it reminds us that, hey, we better seize this moment or we're going to continue backsliding. And that's that's fine with me. I'm glad that 
you know, I'm glad to hear anxiety about that. Here's a big chance not just to have an economic recovery package that makes sense for the people we, you know, who are most at risk of some bad outcome, but also to rethink our healthcare delivery system, our public health and safety nets. You know, I'm not an expert on politics by any stretch of the imagination, but if the Biden administration has the latitude, it can move forward, as you've pointed out in previous episodes, we can move forward a really substantive agenda now that certainly hasn't been possible in recent years. I think that should give us a kind of optimism, but also a a really firm resolve that this is not going to happen without organizing, without real efforts to push this forward on the part of the citizenry, healthcare professionals. I think this is a moment to strike. I intend, as you do, to try and marshal all my energy and energy of lots of other people to strike on those specific matters. You know, our health insurance system, our unemployment insurance system, you know, the rules and regulations of equity in a way. So whether those will play well in Northern Michigan or, I mean, I'm not, I don't know Michigan, so I don't know, but I think that we have to just assume Mm -hmm. that humans might get this message because we're not talking to other species. It's just, and, and vulnerability around an epidemic uh, in my experience over the, the years, and they've been long, can induce a sudden and sometimes dramatic awareness of the need for safety nets. And we certainly saw that in West Africa. You know, one of the things about this rebellious libertarian culture that we're talking about in the subtext, uh, rebellious libertarian Americans, is that you think people in West Africa were happy to follow stay-at-home orders, social distancing rules. They were not. No. They were not. So if, if anything stopped it beyond the Atlantic Ocean, Ebola, that is, uh, it was probably the implementation of some rules and regulations that were really enforced. And did we love experiencing that in the middle of the epidemic? Not really. It wasn't fun to have a three-day lockdown or it wasn't fun. When I say three-day lockdown, I mean no movement at all. Mm-hmm. It wasn't fun. To, have, to follow social distancing guidelines, but their broader uptake is, and along with contact tracing, which I'm putting in that same uh, list of interventions, is, pro- is another thing that made a difference, or at least slowed down ongoing transmission into the second year. I want to ask you, you know, now COVID-19 is, of course, global and has affected the countries that were hit hardest by Ebola. How has the experience of Ebola shaped the experience with COVID-19? Well, let me just give one example. I've been locked down too. I have not been back to Sierra Leone all year or Liberia, but I have been to Rwanda. I spent a month there in the fall. First thing I felt is, well, they don't need me. The second thought should have been, I should go home and not waste other people's food and oxygen. But they were doing a great job. And it wasn't long before just talking to colleagues and friends. Of course, I've been in and out uh, in in all the months preceding. And it didn't take long to see that their experience worrying about Ebola, not COVID, Ebola on their uh, Western flank was important. So just recently, as you probably know, as you do know, there was an Ebola, another Ebola outbreak in, in the Congo. And I had a number of colleagues from Rwanda and the United States and elsewhere, Sierra Leone, go there to try and pitch in. And, you know, again, it was very chaotic, very post-colonial and traumatic. 
in the Congo and, you know, you cross that border and it's a whole different scene. And I was on the Rwandan side, but my colleagues were on the Congolese side. Here, a few months later, you know, you have to ask, did that help the Rwandans prepare for what was coming with COVID just months later? And the answer, I think, is yes. Mm -hmm. For example, you can go into rural northern Rwanda and say to somebody, hey, what's contact tracing? And they'll say, oh, that's when you... They know what contact tracing is. They know what masks are. They know what social distancing are. And they also know what public health rules are. And I think it made a big difference in Rwanda. Even in Sierra Leone and Liberia, they're having less trouble than we're having in the United States, as everybody knows. Yeah. And again, is that merely because of the age structure? I doubt it. I think there's something, certainly with Rwanda, they've had a concerted public health response that's heavy-handed uh, but not as heavy-handed as some of the other kinds of interventions I've d- described. In other words, it is expected. If you're staying in Rwanda, let's say in a hotel, and you go into the lobby, not of the Capitol building, but of a hotel in the city of Kigali, and you forget your mask in your room, you won't get one foot from the elevator before someone says, politely enough, sir, you've forgotten your mask. Sometimes that happens here, I know, but I was quite shocked to be looking at the television last week and see all those unmasked, even members of Congress who didn't have unmasked either. You know, I'm obviously making a reference to what happened last Wednesday, but yeah, they didn't have a mask on. I never saw that in Rwanda, even rural Rwanda. Hmm. One night I was out after the curfew because there was an accident in the street and I happened to be the first person there, the first medical person. But in between the accident scene and the place I was staying in the city couldn't have been more than five minutes. We were stopped three times. Wow. And as soon as I said, I'm a doctor, you know, that was the end of that day. They said, oh, thank you for helping with the accident, whatever. Three times, you know, and that's only in 15 minutes after the curfew started. They took it seriously in Rwanda, but even in, in other places where there's a lot less commitment to public health rules and regulations, they're still doing better than we are. And I think we're going to be struggling with this as you are now in your podcast. We'll be trying to interpret this for many years to come. Absolutely. There's no doubt. I got to ask one final question for you. You're somebody who has faced down a lot of pain and suffering and done the work because you believe that things can be better. What gives you hope right now? Well, (laughs) I'm laughing because a number of people have suggested to me and some of them with way too much access, oh, you're just pathologically hopeful. And maybe, maybe, I mean, this kind of work, as you know very well, requires hope. Yeah. But I find this work so, you're not going to believe what I'm going to say, delightful. Hmm. It is full of delights. I mean, it is tragic, sad, uh, but it's full of joys. And whether they're delights or not, it's full of affirmation. Fellow feeling has to be at the center of it. And I, I will keep trying to find reasons for hope. But the main one is this, the fellow feeling that I mentioned, whatever we call it these days, solidarity, love, of humanity, that fellow feeling, if you can link that to even an in less than industrious engagement that extends over time, there is never an example where things get worse from a health perspective. Like I, I have zero example in 40 years almost soon of doing this work, I have no experience of saying, okay, let's really try hard to address this health dilemma 
And then if we fail, we'll get over it. We never fail because it always succeeds. Whether it succeeds too slowly, like stopping Ebola or stopping COVID in the United States, whether it's outrageous, like having to deal with maternal mortality in Sierra Leone, where the highest rate of maternal mortality in the world, every time you sink your teeth into something and fight for it and work on it, it gets better. Mm -hmm. So sometimes when people ask me that question, I've never answered this way, but sometimes I'm tempted to say, well, if you did this work more, you'd feel hopeful too, you know, because this is gratifying work. And I, you know, yeah, it's been brutal. I lost my father-in-law to COVID. I've lost a number of colleagues uh, and patients, but the great majority of people who receive prompt diagnosis and care do better. And that's going to be truer tomorrow than it was yesterday and truer a week from now that's right. tomorrow. So I just find this tremendously hopeful and uplifting work. The pain of it is not trivial, but isn't it more painful to not be involved in health and social justice work? I think it is. That's true. That's true. There's a, a spot of agency and, as you said, fellow feeling in the work that that keeps you moving. I deeply appreciate the opportunity to be in fellowship with you and i um, really grateful for you taking the time to share your work with us and, and your perspective on uh, this pandemic. And again, that was Dr. Paul Farmer. He is a medical anthropologist and uh, a humanitarian and physician, just dropped a, a fantastic book called Fevers, Feuds, and Diamonds, Ebola and the Ravages of History. Dr. Paul Farmer, thank you again. Thank you. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. President-elect Biden is about to be President Biden, and he just announced an aggressive $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package. It includes $400 billion to focus on safely reopening schools and deploying the vaccine, another $350 billion to support state and local governments who've been taking it on the chin for the past year, childcare subsidies, expanded unemployment benefits, raising the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour, federally mandated paid leave, and $1,400 checks. First, I'd really love to see those checks be $2,000. I mean, we won the Senate on the back of that promise, and I think it's just right to follow up on it. And it's not like folks can't use the money. But this kind of package has been a long time coming. In particular, aid to state and local governments can't come more quickly. At the same time, passage isn't a foregone conclusion. Remember, we hold the Senate by a tiebreaker vote from Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. And folks like Senator Joe Manchin, the last Democrat in West Virginia, has already indicated that he's shaky. But... The new Senate also includes our former guest, Senator Bernie Sanders, as incoming budget chair, which means that he'll oversee the powerful and filibuster-proof budget reconciliation process, which he's already vowed to use to guarantee COVID-19 relief support. So what we have got to do right now, no ifs, buts, or maybes, is have an aggressive agenda that says we understand we have got to be bold in a way that we have not seen since FDR in the 1930s. We thought it was all over in 2020, but I think we're all going to be excited to feel the burn in 2021. That's it for this week. Next week, we'll be talking to Dr. Micah Johnson, a resident physician in the trenches at Boston's Brigham and Women's Hospital, and my co-author on Medicare for All, A Citizen's Guide. We'll talk about the process of trying to raise the conversation about healthcare reform out of politics and back to policy and the bedside, and why the COVID-19 pandemic should be reshaping the debate about healthcare and Medicare for All. And don't forget, we've still got a few more of our Science Always Wins sweatshirts, t-shirts, and hats available at the Crooked store. They're going quick, so make sure to grab one before they're all gone. Crooked.com slash store. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. 
Veronica Simonetti mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Taka Asuzawa and Alex Ugiero. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer and me, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.